Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, we are joined by Ashish Gadness. He is the co-founder and CEO of Banku. Banku uses blockchain technology to create transparency and traceability in transactions. Ashish and his team are harnessing this technology to help farmers, workers, waste pickers and others often living in poverty to engage with bigger businesses and their value chains. During our conversation, Ashish reveals and demystifies this technology for us. You'll hear why they were featured in Time Magazine's 2019 Innovations List. Ashish himself is a serial entrepreneur. Our podcasts care deeply about the people who are delivering the innovations and the impact, not just the businesses themselves. During our conversation, Ashish shares his own personal journey, from first-generation immigrant, coder, to CEO and founder. What he won't say is that he has been recognized in a number of different ways. He's recognized by the MIT, receiving the Innovative for Refugees Award. He's been a young global leader with the World Economic Forum. He is recognized as a minority business leader by Twin Cities Business. He's one of the 40 under 40 in the Business Journal and has received the Changemakers Innovator Award. So Sheesh, it's a pleasure and privilege to have you join us today. Welcome. Hi, Katie. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great to have you. Ashish, I really want to start off today. Blockchain is a term that we hear banded around quite a lot. What is actually meant by blockchain and why are people excited about it? Well, what's really meant by blockchain is that multiple people that participate in a transaction should get an equal copy of the transaction. That's a very basic definition of blockchain. But in the industry today, there's a lot of confusion or misunderstanding where people confuse blockchain and cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is an application of blockchain, but the underlying technology, blockchain as people refer to, or distributed ledger technology, there's something very basic that traditional systems have not done Because traditional systems always have one copy of the transaction stored in a database if two or more people participate in the transaction. Whereas in distributed ledger technology or blockchain, multiple people participating in a transaction, all of them get a copy of the transaction and that copy becomes immutable. So that's the the big innovation in my opinion, because it creates uh, data democracy in my opinion. And you're a co-founder and CEO of Banku, which is using this technology to assist supply chain transparency. Can you share a bit more about the business and how the technology is being applied? Absolutely. So we are a software as a service company. We're for profit, but driven by purpose. Our aim or goal in life is to enable traceability and transparency in supply chains both on the sourcing side and at the distribution side for companies, but in a way that serves two purposes. One, it brings profitability, efficiency, and transparency to the brands so they can continue to grow their business and thrive. 
But at the same time, they are now purchasing these raw materials of finished goods from poorest farmers in the world, or they're using supply chains to bring back recycling material where the bottles and the waste is picked up by garbage collectors or recyclers. That second side of the equation has been always forgotten. So what we do is we've created a supply chain software using blockchain that strengthens the supply chain for the brand, but at the same time gives visibility and equality to the poorest people in those supply chain. So an easy way to explain what BankQ does is that we enable people out of extreme poverty because it legitimizes their existence in those supply chains. And at the same time, we enable brands to have traceability, transparency, and sustainability in their supply chains. So that is what we do. Could you perhaps give some further examples? You, you talked a bit about the recyclers there. Are there other examples of, of how this might work in practice? Absolutely. So the major examples that we have now implemented, right? So for us, it's not a pilot or a proof of concept. You know, we're a commercial software company coming up on almost five years. We're deployed across 40 countries. So it's not just an idea. The specific cases that we um, have done good work in and we have shown success is one is smallholder farming. Um, so if you look at specific crops like coffee, cacao, maize, barley, so on and so forth, also in recycling, waste picking. The other area that we've had a lot of success is the reduction of child labor in the tobacco industry. And I can share the public case with you on this podcast. And also now recently in the pandemic, we've used this technology across 25 countries with the Islamic Development Bank to ensure that the COVID funding and the COVID supplies are reaching the most vulnerable populations in poor countries. So multiple use cases, but those are the ones that we have anchored in and found a fair amount of success in so far. So tell us a bit more about the um, reduction of child labor in the tobacco industry you mentioned. Absolutely. So, you know, back in 2018, we got a call from Japan Tobacco. Japan Tobacco is, I think, the second or third largest tobacco company in the world. And, you know, they have for many, many years committed to reducing child labor in the tobacco industry because it's a well-known fact that in tobacco, cacao, and mining, especially things like cobalt, child labor is rampant. But they believe that reducing child labor is not just a good social good, but it's also a business decision because a a good child's education is going to secure their long-term supply chain, right? Because if children are in child labor, then it's going to affect the long-term viability of those farms. So in 2018, when we started talking to them, we realized that one of the key pieces that they were trying to solve is how do you ensure the monitoring that these children are actually in school during the harvest period, right? So one of the challenges that they gave us that could we look at the BankQ platform as a way, because we were already doing work with farmers in terms of you know, the traceability and transparency of the crops. And they challenged us and says, could this technology be used to now reduce and eventually eliminate child's labor? So I went to Malawi and Brazil and I studied what was going on. And I realized that one of the key elements was school attendance. One of the key elements was these children are attending school and a way to ensure that these children are in school is to adapt the blockchain platform 
in a very similar way we were doing transparency traceability of crops, we could now do the traceability and transparency of school attendance. So fast forward today, we're live with them in four countries across 40,000 farming households. And the way it works is very simple. The blockchain platform that we have deployed works through basic phones. So SMS, so no need to download an app. There is no cryptocurrency. And the students that are enrolled in that school and under the care of the teacher and the community leaders, they use blockchain to ensure that the kid is in class. So something as simple as school attendance, instead of being taken on a piece of paper that has a risk because then it goes into an Excel spreadsheet, then it gets emailed. Now it's taken on blockchain, it's extremely secure, and it notifies the brand, it notifies the community and teacher that this is the attendance history and the report card of the child. So then they can correlate that and say, hey, we are buying crops from those farming families whose children are flourishing in schools. So that's how we have implemented the blockchain technology to reduce child labor. And we're hoping to do the same in mining and the cacao industry, which is the two industries that have one of the biggest abuses right now. Oh, and that's such an amazing example of kind of cross-sector collaboration, I guess, because you don't very often think about the kind of business, bigger businesses working for social good with schools and and really kind of thinking, thinking further ahead, I guess. Absolutely. Because, you know, one of the, and this is, I'm learning, right? I started this journey back in 2000, uh, really 2013, when I sold my last startup and spent two years as a volunteer in Congo. And one of the interesting things that I realized that brands have two paths, right? One is to go the traditional path, which is, you know, corporate social responsibility, start a foundation and do, you know, completely upside things. Or brands like Japan Tobacco, Anheuser-Busch, AB Bev, or Nestle, or some of our clients where they believe for them, sustainability and social impact is not a side thing. It's just part of their day-to-day business. So they don't look at child labor as a social good, right? They look at, hey, we need to reduce child labor so that we can continue to you know, sell tobacco products, good or bad, right? I'm not judging. Same thing with beverage, right? AB InBev and as a Bush Budweiser, they're one of our big clients and they buy barley from smallholder farmers. And for them, they use BenQ because it's very clear that if the smallholder mama farmer is not financially empowered, if she's not connected to technology, then she's not going to have a long-term good harvest. If you don't have a good harvest, you don't have good beer, right? So it's kind of sustainability is their business instead of sitting on the side. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, lots of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Taking a sort of serious look at 2020, um, we're recording this podcast halfway through the year. And it keeps throwing us some really massive curveballs. Ashish, you are sitting at the leading edge of technology, finding solutions to some really big challenges. From this vantage point, what do you think, what would be your sort of top three social innovation trends that you can see which businesses should be getting involved with and and be aware of? Uh, Great question. Thank you. I think the number one, it's going to sound odd, but I think it's data democracy. That's the number one Thing, in my personal opinion, that has held back two key elements of the UN SDGs. One is gender equality and extreme poverty. And the reason why it is more relevant now, because of the COVID crisis, right, more people have been pushed into extreme poverty. If you saw the UNICEF report that came out in June, 
more children are being pushed into child labor and women are discriminated more than ever in emerging markets in supply chains. So in my opinion, the number one challenge that brands, or it doesn't, you don't have to be a big company. You could have 50 farmers and you could be buying vanilla beans from them. You have to take the responsibility now to know who uh, is that last mile in your supply chain and is that mama farmer or is that mama recycler empowered in a way that they can prove existence in your supply chain? So in my opinion, that would be the number one. Number two would be the consumers have to wake up and not just look at a fair trade label and feel good. They really have to ask the question. If you say you know your farmers in the coffee supply chain, then I want to actually know, has the farmer's livelihood gone up, right? Because post-COVID, supply chains are going to be strained and the next pandemic hits, we're not going to be prepared again because we don't know our supply chains, right? So that would be, in my personal opinion, the number two section. And then the number three is kind of tying back to the first one is giving the people ability to now use their data as their economic passport. And the easiest example I would give you is that if you are a mother on the Congo-Zambia border and you've been selling coffee through an NGO or through a large coffee company, there's a good chance that your data is sitting in their spreadsheet or their database. And the minute you leave or a minute a war breaks out, the mother's information is reset. She has nothing to prove because she does not own her data. And I think for me, the third trend is that the ability to, for that mother farmer or the mother recycler to own, access, monetize, and permission her data, right, which we in the first world in one way or the other have access to, she needs to have if we truly want to bridge that gap and create gender equality and reduce extreme poverty. Ashish, as a social entrepreneur, I want to talk a bit about you and your own journey. This podcast is as much about the individual as the, as the work that you are leading. What has really led you to this point? What is, what is your story so far that has resulted in you being the founder and CEO of a, of a blockchain organization? Thank you. You know, it's really personal to me and I get emotional about it because I had two inflection points in my life that have brought me here. One was pretty traditional. I grew up poor like everybody else in India. You know, I'm 51 years old. So in the early, late 60s, early 70s, you know, we didn't have anything and I did not exist, right? So my dad said, hey, you better, if you want to get out of poverty, you either program or you beg, right? So I started programming and I came to America uh, fortunate you know, and I was able to build a business and sold my last company in 2012. And the two inflection points were interesting. They were 20 years apart. In 1994, when I came to the United States, I had only $240. But at the end of the month, you know, because I'd come in legally on a work visa and everything, I was able to open a bank account because the local bank in Boston was able to validate my one-month work history, my rent receipt, and my phone bill. And that was an incident that kind of, you know, shook me in a positive way because it felt that somebody had actually recognized my existence in society, right? Because I had grown up with being a nobody. Fast forward, after I sold my last company in 2012 and I retired, I spent two years as a volunteer for USAID in the Congo working with farmers. 
And because I wanted to give back, I wanted to do something around poverty. I really didn't know. So I did the classic thing, which every entrepreneur does, right? They start something from an NGO perspective or go volunteer. But at the end of 2014, I got into a fight, which is kind of that second inflection point, because one of the women farmers that I was working with wanted to open a bank account. And we all know women are smarter than men. It's just a fact. And it surprised me that she was thinking this through, saying, you know what? If I can open a bank account, I'll have better access to credit. And because, you know, we from the U.S. and this, this, at this time, I was just a volunteer for USAID. And she said, look, you programs come and go, but we continue to live in poverty. And that's kind of when I realized, hey, this mother needs to be bankable. So when we went to the local bank, I got into a fight because the local bank said no. They said, we cannot bank her. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've known this farmer. And she has harvest. We buy her harvest. You know, the coffee company buys the coffee and, you know, charges $8 for a latte in New York. How can you not bank her? Because, you know, 20 years before that, I was bankable with one month's work history, right, in in Boston. And, And you know how it is in the Congo, right? It's a tough place. And the guy said at the end, look, he said, I cannot really bank her because she technically doesn't exist, but I will bank you looking at me and I had a US passport and I was with the US ID, USAID. And it really, really blew me away. It, it literally put me into depression because I was just like, wait a minute. So 20 years later, this mother is not bankable. And the guy looks at me, says, I can bank you. So that's where the name comes from. And that's kind of when I realized that the fundamental flaw in global supply chains is that people who produce raw materials and finished goods completely are invisible, yet we consume their output, right? And that's kind of when I decided I wanted to do something about it. And I spent a year looking for a solution, couldn't find a solution. And that's when I started BenQ in 2016. Wow, that's a pretty epic journey. Well, and and massive best of luck with the next steps. On that piece, I mean, what advice would you give to others who are potentially looking to become social entrepreneurs or indeed are sort of in the throes of it um, to sort of make it a success? Oh, that's a great question. So, you know, I have failed more than I have succeeded. You know, I was fired from my second startup. You know, I don't know if, if advice, but just my two or three, you know, pointers that I've learned the hard way, especially in this space, right, is one is do not do anything around social entrepreneurship with a pity lens. I almost hate it. It's a strong word because a lot of entrepreneurs that I've met with who are trying to do good in the world have this pity lens, right? They feel pity for the mother. They they feel pity for the refugee. They feel pity for the recycler. You got to break that because if you don't, then you're not going to treat that supply chain or your work with equality, right? So that's kind of number one. Um, you know, feedback I would give anybody. If you're trying to do something, make sure when you look that mother in the eye, she's equal to you and you're learning from her. So that's kind of the number one. The number two uh, lesson, at least that I've learned the hard way, is data is the new currency, right? And oftentimes today's uh, social entrepreneurs who are kind of going down the tech path, they have the short-term vision, hey, we're going to collect all this data and then we're going to sell all this data, right? It's the Facebook model. And that's one of the grounding principles when we started BenQ in 2016. We said we will never own data. And that's why we use blockchain. 
And it has turned off investors. People have not invested in us because of that. They're like, wait a minute. Well, why would we invest in you if you cannot take all this data and resell it? I said, I don't want to be the next Facebook. I want to be the anti-Facebook. And it's if you're truly trying to make the world more equitable, then you should not own data. The data is the ownership of the recycler or of the mother farmer, right? Or the miner in Congo. And then the third one, which is kind of the hardest one that I have learned, right? Is that when you're trying to do, you know, groundbreaking work, right? You have to be very conscious of the circumstances and the cultural pieces that are in that zip code, as I call it, right? So I'll give you a good example. You know, when we spend a lot of time in the field, now with COVID, it's been a little bit difficult. We spend months on with the farmers and the recyclers, not talking them, talking to them about being Q or blockchain. In fact, if you look at all of our farmers and recyclers, they don't even know blockchain because everything is delivered to them in an SMS message in their local language, right? And that last part is critical because oftentimes technologists or you know, entrepreneurs want to build yet another savvy app to pull people out of poverty. And I think it's the wrong thing. You have to meet where people are in order to then make an impact. And if that made any sense. Heaps of sense. I've been making lots of notes. <laughs> I'm going to take it forward. Thank you, Ashish. As I mentioned before, we're halfway through sort of 2020. The UN General Assembly and the Sustainable Development Goals continue sort of abatum, whether we're mid-COVID or, or otherwise. 2020 for the UN is a big focus on trying to deliver the future we want. And I'm kind of keen to ask you about that question. What is the future that you want? So I think personally for me, right, I think the future I want is where, you know, when crises happen, right, we want to look at everybody through an equality lens. And I think the one of the biggest challenges that is coming up, not just for the UN, but the global communities is the COVID vaccine. There's a lot of talk around inequity in the vaccine distribution, right? And I think the UN can play a major role. But in my humble opinion, the UN also needs to start thinking as an equitable business. They have to start thinking about the transparency in their own programs, right? They cannot operate as this massive bureaucracy because, you know, oftentimes we see a fair amount of issues in the UN organization, right? So in my opinion, kind of in the immediate future, my hope is that we will use this lesson of COVID that, you know, we failed, right? We failed not only in terms of understanding the pandemic, but we've also failed in how we have approached the solution based on people's network, right? I mean, it's, it's a sad fact, but, you know, we hear all, a lot about COVID in, four, you know, uh, developed countries, you know, like the US and Canada and the UK. But I've been on calls now for the last four months with the Islamic Development Bank and the work they're doing in countries like Mauritania and Senegal and Yemen and Sudan. And while they are having COVID cases rise, they also have a food shortage because of the supply chains and the world's not talking about it, right? So my hope is that this is the lesson that teaches us to say, hey, we need to go all the way and understand that Yemen may not have a massive COVID crisis, but Yemen has a massive cholera crisis. Yemen has a massive food shortage. And how do we enable those supply chains so that we look at everybody equally. Well, on those wise words, that brings us to the end of our conversation today. Um, for anybody listening, 
We will put up into the words that sit alongside this podcast links to find out more about Ashish, his work and Banku. Uh, but leaves me just to say, Ashish uh, Gadness, thank you very much for sharing your story, your insights and your advice with us today. Thank you. I feel blessed to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Pleasure. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.